All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We hope you have them. If you don't, feel free to steal the persons next to you. They'll forgive you. We're in Genesis chapter 44 this morning, so why don't you go ahead and make your way there. Genesis, it's just before Revelation. On Sunday morning, as we continue our look at the life of Joseph, we began together looking at his life to remind ourselves that no matter what we go through in life, no matter what our circumstances may be, God is always with us. And when you talk about Joseph, I think the immediate thing that comes to most people's mind is what color were the many colors of his coat? And did he really look like Donny Osmond? These are the same people who believe that, of course, Moses looks like Charlton Heston. We have a Donny Osmond fan right here. Some of them are like Beth, they're like, Donny who? What? What is this guy talking about? Okay. All right, that's one step from a stalker. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll be here all weekend. Don't forget to t- tip your server. Uh, when we think of Joseph's life, the first idea of his story is we think of his dreams, we think of the pit, we think of the prison, we think of the palace. But embedded in this story is one of the greatest examples of true repentance leading to reconciliation, leading to restoration. As we watch the life of Joseph play out, we now come to chapter 44 where we begin to see that the brothers that began this journey uh, with Joseph and started Joseph out on this journey personally by throwing him into a pit, leaving him for dead, selling him into slavery. We are now going to see that God is bringing these brothers to true repentance. Now, repentance is a word that all Christians, I think, are familiar with. And I use that word specifically, familiar with. However, though, many, I don't know, really understand what it means and what it truly looks like. But repentance is the first step in the reconciliation and the restoration of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we as believers in Jesus Christ need to understand what a privilege the offer of repentance is for each and every one of us. You may be surprised to find out that when Jesus began his ministry, if we believe in a theological position, what is called Mark in priority, that Mark was the first gospel written and the others borrowed from Mark. The first words that Mark uses to record concerning Jesus's first introduction on the scene is found in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. And it says, now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is repentance? Well, like Paul said in Romans chapter 15 verse 4, he said that the 
Old Testament has been given to us to understand, to learn, and to create within us patience that leads to hope. Meaning it gives us illustrations of New Testament doctrine, theology, teaching. And here in chapter 44, we have a picture of true repentance. And as we examine this together, I am hoping that you therefore understand that even as believers in Jesus Christ, sin is serious before God. Sin is serious. And John made this clear by inviting us that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what happens when a believer in Jesus Christ sins? What happens if they are living in sin? Does God kick them out of the, church, the family? Are they no longer Christians? No, I don't believe that. But what they do is that they, they sever an intimacy between themselves and God. A close, personal intimacy that God desires to have with each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. That sin stifles the growth that Christ would have for us. Yeah, it, he, it keeps us from the blessings that He wants to provide for us. It weighs on our conscience. It creates guilt leading to conviction. And it's a very miserable place to be in as a Christian. So sin is serious. We talk about the sin of those who do not know Christ. And the necessity for them to come to faith through, through Christ, beginning with repentance. But we as Christians often minimize our sin. We, also, we often say, well, you know, grace covers a multitude of sin. And we diminish the seriousness of it. But if we are going to remain sensitive to God's Word and to His Spirit, when conviction arises in our heart, it's imperative that we take our hearts before God and as David prayed, Lord, search me to see if there be any wicked way within me. What is repentance? Well, it has been defined as such. To change one's way of life as a result of complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and to righteousness. Often we experience remorse. We may show remorse and equate that to be repentance, but the Bible says that remorse does not go far enough. So today we find the beginning of the reconciliation and the restoration. And if I may add one more R word, the revelation. It is now in the wake of the true repentance of the brothers that next week Joseph will finally reveal himself to his brothers and show them how God had been working this entire time. All right, let's pick it up in chapter 44, verse 1, together. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now, to bring us up to speed, for those of you who are just joining us today, the brothers had returned now to a second time to Egypt 
to purchase grain due to the fact that grain wasn't available anywhere within the known world due to a severe famine that had hit the land. They do not know that they're interacting with their brother Joseph in whom they believe is dead. And now they've come a second time to purchase grain a second time because their first uh, allotment of grain had expired and now they're needing more. But one of the caveats that Joseph required was to bring the younger brother back with them. And I'd encourage you to read up until this point. Go ahead, we'll wait for you. To understand why this was so significant. But now Joseph is now instructing his steward, saying, go ahead and place the grain in their sacks. Also put the money back in their sacks. But he moves one step further. And then in verse 2, he says, And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and the grain money, so he did according to the word Joseph had spoken. Now, this is interesting. It's the setup. Joseph wants to see if his brothers are truly repentful for what they had, did, had done to him. And by doing so, by looking for this, he, he does it in an extraordinary way. He tells and instructs his steward to put a cup in the youngest one, that is Benjamin's sack, as if he were to have stolen it, to see how his brothers will react. Now, this is unique. Uh, we don't have examples of this elsewhere in Scripture of repentance being brought about this way, even though the Bible tells us that the brothers already feel guilty for what they have done. And they have expressed that guilt, knowing that they're selling their brother Joseph to the Ishmaelites and then the Ishmaelites bringing him to Egypt. When they had to venture to Egypt to purchase grain, they had undoubtedly wondered if their brother was still alive. So as the steward placed the cup in the youngest sack, that is, Benjamin's sack, as soon as the morning had dawned, the men were sent away and, and, and with their donkeys. And they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off. And Joseph said to his steward, now get up and follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not the one in which my Lord drinks? And with he who indeed practices divination, you have done evil in doing so do. And so he overtook them, and he spoke with them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. So Joseph sends his steward to immediately follow them, to overtake them, to search them, and to discover that one of them bears the cup in which the steward had placed in Benjamin's sack. Creating the understanding that Benjamin stole it. But the brothers, of course, knew that they hadn't, and they said, far be it from me, from us to have stolen this cup from you. Now, the narrative that the author Moses wants us to follow is the understanding of why they would repay good with evil. 
Why would they react in such a way? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the particular cup in which... I love it when my voice voice cracks at 54. The particular cup that they had stolen was a cup that was used to practice the art of divination. Now that may confuse you. I can tell you that it confused me. Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph had a good relationship with God. What did it mean for him to practice divination? Well, there are some commentators who believe that Joseph never truly practiced divination, but that's hard to get around with with the verse that we're going to see in just a moment. So what was Joseph actually doing that was considered divination? It appears that he, like other kings and men of wisdom of that time, were using these things as instruments of discernment. Now, there are different types of divination in the Bible. In fact, earlier in Genesis, we have a very interesting verse concerning Laban, where the same Hebrew word for divination is used, but it is translated in the English as learn by experience. In Genesis chapter 30, verses 27 through 28, and Laban said to him, please stay. If I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience, the Hebrew word naha, that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. Divination, which will later be prohibited by God through the Mosaic Covenant, was used to discern the will of God in the life of individuals. It is along the lines of the Hebrew practice of using the Uma and the Thurman, which are black and white stones that are used to discover which is God's will. For example, white would be yes, black would be no. They would use these cups in the same way. And there were different manners in which they would use them. For example, they would pour oil into water Olaminsi, which then would, of course, separate, and in the manner in which it separated would determine if it, the answer is yes or no, go or stay, etc. Hydromancy was just the opposite. It was pouring water into oil. And then there was lechomancy, which is the observing actions in liquids of some form and of some kind in some container. But all of this was used to discern God's will. Did Joseph use this manner to discern God's will? Did Joseph practice divination at all? Well, it's not 100% clear, but I thought I need to answer this because, again, we hold Joseph in high esteem. Now, later, God will prohibit the use of divination in any form. Why does he do so? Because it's no longer necessary. It's no longer necessary because through the Mosaic Covenant, God's will for his people has been revealed. And verses such as Leviticus 19.26, You shall not eat anything with blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. In Deuteronomy 18.10-14, 
There shall not be found among you any who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire. This is referring to child sacrifice. Or one who practices witchcraft. No, there isn't white witches and black witches. It is witchcraft and it is prohibited by God. Or a soothsayer. Or one who interprets omens. Or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispose, listen to soothsayers and diviners, or diviners. But you, but as for you, notice this. The Lord God has not appointed such for you. They had something better. They didn't have to rely on these things, these practices such as the pagan nations did. They had clear communication between their God and them through His Word. We don't have to wonder about what God is thinking. We don't have to wonder about what His plans and desires for us are. We have His Word to reveal that to us. As Christians, we should know and by no means practice these things because not only do we have the completed Word of God, Old and New Testament, but we have something more. We have God Himself residing in us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. These things are not necessary. Now, let me be honest with you. These things do exist. They are real. And there is another world that individuals communicate with that isn't the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of Satan himself. These things will lead people astray. They will destroy people's lives. They will tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. They will lead people into various uh, attitudes and actions, everything except coming to faith in and through Jesus Christ. I have no need for these things because God is with me, and he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And that is why these things are prohibited to us. We don't need them. But to continue looking at the question in which is asked in verse 5 and in verse 4. Why have you repaid evil for good? One of the dynamic characters, characteristics of Joseph that we have watched and seen so far is his forgiveness, his grace that he has shown his brothers. Later, we'll read in Genesis chapter 50 what they meant for evil, God has meant for good. But when the brothers came to him, he didn't retaliate. He didn't punish them for what they had done. He gave them the offer of forgiveness by showing them grace, giving them the food in which they needed, returning their money to them, allowing them to return. He showed them an overwhelming abundance of forgiveness. 
And that forgiveness began to play on their hearts. It began to cause them to question. It brought their guilt to the surface. And it reminds me of Paul in the New Testament. After Paul the Apostle held the jacket of those who were stoning Stephen, he stood and watched. There, At that point, his name was Saul. But later on, as you come to Acts chapter 9, you realize that as he was on his way to Damascus, a light shone about him. He was knocked off of his high horse. He was thrown to the ground. A thundering voice asked him this question, Paul, Paul why is it that you are persecuting me? And Paul finally, finally realized that the one in whom he was persecuting was God himself, Jesus. But God asked him another question. It is, why are you kicking against the goad? Why are you resisting? Why are you trying to suppress your convicted conscience? Why are you trying to dismiss what you have seen to be the true act of faith in the life of those who follow me. As he saw Stephen die, Paul watched in amazement as Stephen cried out and said, Lord, forgive them and don't charge this to them for what they are doing, as Jesus did on the cross. As the conviction was arising in the hearts of his brothers, Joseph wanted to confirm that the conviction had come now to true repentance. It's one thing to be convicted, but true repentance is manifested when we act upon that conviction. But through the New Testament, we are told that even when one shows us evil, we are to know in no way repay evil for evil, as Paul said in Romans twelve seventeen. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. In Romans 12, 21, do not become, do not overcome, become overcome by evil, excuse me, but overcome evil with good. He later wrote to the Thessalonians when he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good both for yourself and for all. Why? Because it imitates the reason that we come to repentance as individuals. What leads us to repentance? Paul tells us in the book of Romans. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. If we will repay evil with kindness, compassion, grace, forgiveness, we are emulating, we are imitating that which God has done on our behalf to invite them to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it is imperative. And that's what Joseph is trying to determine by what he is doing here. And in verse 8, the brothers say, Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which was found in the mouths of our sacks. This is the first time. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house? With whomever your servants is found, let him die. 
and we also will be my Lord's slave. They're professing their innocence, and they were innocent in this particular regard. But this profession of innocence leads us to understand the number one reason people don't come to repentance is because that they believe that they are innocent before God, that their sins are somewhat justified in some way, that God doesn't really care. God is overlooking their sin. And even in some way, if they're prospering while sinning, they may even determine in and of themselves that God in some way approves of their sin. All couldn't be farther from the truth. But when you talk to an individual who doesn't know the Lord, they'll often profess their innocence. Well, I'm not really that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as the person down the street or my spouse or whoever it may be, comparing themselves to someone who's worse. I always seem to get the person when I'm witnessing that compares themselves to Adolf Hitler. Great. Talk about lowering the bar, right? Yeah, we all look pretty good then. But then we ask him, well, what about Billy Graham? How do you feel about him? And how do you feel about this person and that person or Jesus, etc.? Well, Jesus was perfect and none of us could be perfect. That's exactly the point I'm trying to make. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But until we understand our guilt and our condemnation before God, apart from Christ... We will never cry out for repentance and forgiveness. The other thing that people often want to do is they want to dismiss the responsibility for their actions. We have created a society that has absolutely become incredibly, uh, what's the word, skilled at ducking responsibility. We don't want to take ownership for our own actions. We want to blame someone or something else for those things in which we do. But God doesn't look at us that way. He looks at us as individuals who are completely responsible for our actions. One doesn't justify the other. And that leads to a misunderstanding of who God is. And in that misunderstanding of who God is, we come to conclusions such as, does God even exist or does he even care about what I do? Or they'll say, well, he's a God of love and in the end, everyone wins, love wins and everyone gets in. Or number three, they simply believe that there are no consequences for their actions and therefore they don't have to account for their actions. But the Bible tells us just the opposite, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that in Revelation chapter 20, that each and every person apart from Jesus Christ will stand before God. The books will be open and every thought, deed, and action will be weighed. And everything will be held to an account. Everything will be determined in the balance of the scales of the Ten Commandments, the perfection of Jesus Christ. For it is Christ who sits on that throne and judges righteously 
Why? Because it was Jesus Christ who came and to die for the sins of the world. But often again, we misunderstand God's long-suffering. Now, i got to be honest with you. In studying the Bible for over 30 years, I've now determined one of the things that I cannot comprehend in my finite state is the infinite long-suffering of God. I say infinite because in my understanding of time, it appears to be infinite. But there will come a time when that long-suffering will end, where that goodness will end. But often in that long-suffering, people then make all kinds of determinations concerning God and Him and their sin, and as a result, they don't deal or contend with their sin before God from the point of trying to justify it to the point of trying to simply dismiss it. But Paul says something else. When he writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, of God's goodness, of His forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Peter went on to say it this way in 2 Peter 3.9. We'll look at it this Wednesday. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, meaning He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't promised something falsely, as some would count slackness. But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's the reason for his long suffering. And that blows my mind. Because if we see the injustice in our world from our vantage point, can we imagine what God sees from his? If we see the sin and the corruption that we see from our perspective, can you imagine what God sees from his? Can you imagine God hearing the cries of each and every one of the 63 million children that have been aborted? And yet He is long-suffering, waiting and willing that all should come and should not perish, but come to repentance. That's our God. And that's His desire for us, that we would come to repentance before Him. But what does that repentiveness look like? And how is it manifested in our lives? So let's take a look. In verse 10, And he said, Now also let it be according to your words, He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched, and he began with the oldest, and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then he tore his, they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him, on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? 
Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now what were they confessing about? They didn't steal the cup, but the cup was found on them. There was something more playing out in their hearts and in their minds. The guilt of what they had done to Joseph still remained. They knew that these various things that they're experiencing, these difficulties that they're experiencing, these circumstances, have all come upon them for what they had done earlier because of what they had done earlier. And now they are finally facing the fact. Notice what Judah says. And in this we see the beginning of the manifestation of true repentance. What, we sh- what shall we say to my Lord? How is it possible for any of us to justify our sins before Christ? What can I say? How can I talk my way out of this? In the righteous perfection of Christ and His all-knowing Knowing me better than I know myself, how can I justify myself verbally? And what shall we speak? What words can I use? Or how shall we clear ourselves? There's no possible way of earning forgiveness in and of ourselves. That's the point that Judah is coming to. That's the point that we must come to if we are going to come to Jesus Christ. Lord, there's nothing I can say, there's nothing I can do, and there's certainly nothing I can do to clear my name before you. This is the beginning of the manifestation of true repentance. It's the abandonment of the idea that we in and of ourselves in some way can provide righteousness for ourselves, can justify ourselves, can earn forgiveness from Christ by the things in which we have done. This is where true grace comes into play. This is where our understanding of sin brings us to the end of our arguing with God. And notice, he says very clearly, for God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. It is interesting to me that Moses said, be careful, for your sin shall find you out. I don't know about you, but one of the doors that I'm so glad that our visitors don't open when they come to our house is our closets. Now, when we invite you over, everybody's going to run, peek in the closet. What has he got in there? You know, the rest of the house can be spotless, but, you know, the closet is one of those things out of sight, out of mind. And often we hide our sin in the same fashion. We come to church, we look good. We say the right things. But behind closed doors and when we are alone are times in which sin often reigns within us. It's at those moments that we feel that we are not accountable for those actions because no one knows what we are doing. And yet, Moses says that our sin shall find us out. The New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews says, all things are open and naked unto the Lord. We aren't getting away with anything. 
He sees our heart and our mind and so forth. As one wrote once, he said that the true character of a person is found in their actions when no one is watching. Judah couldn't argue any longer. And this will lead Judah to one of the greatest intercessions on behalf of Benjamin that is found in the Bible. And notice, this intercession is due to Joseph's response in verse 17. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man whom the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. Well, they knew that if they didn't bring Benjamin back, it was going to be problematic. But Judah, who began in verse 16, continues in 18. Then Judah came near to him and said, and the word is interesting in the Hebrew, it's coming near in the sense of placing himself in a subservient position, humbling himself before Joseph. Oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. The first thing Judah does is he acknowledges the authority that Joseph has and that his life is in Joseph's hands. The second step to true repentance is to acknowledge the authority of God in our our lives. Understanding who God is. As Christians, the Bible says that we have become doulos. The Greek word, it means slave. Bondservants to Jesus Christ. It means we have abandoned ourselves. We have given up our will, our desires, our goals, our wants to follow our Lord. It means that it's no longer my life but it's Christ's life. To surrender to his complete lordship of our life, I believe, is a necessary component of a true Christian life. Now, that would be a very scary endeavor if we didn't know who Christ was, that he has our best in mind for us, that he loves us with an unconditional love, and that ultimately... In the process of following him, he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And he's restoring us and bringing us out of darkness into light and creating us once again to be the man or woman of God that he desires us to be. In the New Testament, one thing we see consistently demonstrated amongst all those who followed Christ was the abandonment of self. And yet, so often I hear Christians speak about their relationship with Jesus as if Jesus is here to serve them. That Jesus is here in my life to bring about those things that I want. Jesus is here to, you know, provide every uh, wish and inkling that I have. To make me feel happy each and every day. To uh, give me my best life now. But yet, the Bible says something completely different. The first thing that we as Christians must understand that there is a huge difference between the happiness that the Constitution tells us to pursue or that we have the right to pursue and the joy that is instilled in us through Christ. As Christians, we must surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, they, we love Christ as Savior, but it's more difficult when we make Him Lord. In verse 19, my Lord asked His servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man. I wonder how Jacob feels that his sons are keep calling him the old man. And a child of his old age, that is Benjamin, who is the youngest of his brother, uh, is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, that is Rachel. They believe Joseph is dead, obviously. Benjamin's alive from Rachel. And the father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is, uh, uh, is with us, then we will go down. For he may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one, that is Benjamin, also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up, In the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety, that is a guarantee for the lad, to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now notice verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? What has happened here? Judah has had a complete change of heart. Judah says, take me instead. I don't want to grieve my father in this way. For truly, Joseph and Benjamin were from his wife Rachel, and Joseph now is lost, and Benjamin is the only left. Judah says, take me. Take me instead of Benjamin. Let me be a substitute for him. You see where this is going? When we come to repentance... And we come to that place where we no longer can justify our sin before God in any way, shape, or form and can't account for them in and of ourselves. And we submit to His authority. What God does for us is gives us a substitute. What God does is He takes your broken, fallen life 
and he places it on the back of Christ. And Christ gives us his life of righteousness and of eternity. As John says, he becomes our propitiation for sin. A substitute is rendered on our behalf. God providing himself a sacrifice for you and I in the person of Jesus Christ. See, repentance will, will move us and to lay ourselves down and say, I can't do it, there's nothing I can do. But he was willing to intercede on one's behalf. Now, of course, it is an abstract parallel, not perfect. But the idea of substitution is now being instilled in the readers of Scripture. Because as God gave a substitute for Isaac who laid on, those, on that sacrificial place before God under his hand of his father Abraham. And God stopped Abraham and said, I shall provide myself the sacrifice. Once again, we see a substitute being given. As a ram was given in place of Isaac, now Judah is saying, forgive me, I have brought this upon myself. Why was it Judah who spoke? It wasn't the oldest. Why was it Judah? It was Judah because earlier on it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And I can't do anything about that, but I can do something about this. And Joseph sees that the heart of his brothers have begun to change. And this isn't simply remorse. The feeling bad of getting caught the emotion that's experienced in the wake of consequences. This is true repentance and he's willing to act upon it. He's willing to make a change. And what's interesting to me is that Joseph sees this and the next thing that will occur is the revelation of who he truly is. I don't believe that we can truly experience God in the manner that he desires us to experience him without going through repentance. Not justifying our sin, not sweeping it under the rug, not hiding it in the closet, but bringing it out before him. Knowing that He graciously waits us to do so. The door is open for us to come in to find grace and help in our time of need at any time. That Jesus Christ, I love John 3.16, I quote it all the time. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is the door of invitation to forgiveness. This is it right here. That whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But I am feeling convicted that I don't go on to verse 17. For I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. This is our God. If you are feeling conviction this morning, if you know that there is sin in your life that you're not dealing with, the long-suffering of God is not... Him saying that He condones your sin or He agrees with your sin. He's giving you an opportunity to repent of it. That you may experience Him as if as 
He always desired you to experience Him. One of the most fascinating places in the Old Testament that demonstrates repentance is found in the book of Jonah. Now, if you've never read the book of Jonah, may I encourage you to do so. Uh, I, I love Jonah the prophet when he's commissioned by God to go to Nineveh to preach, to tell them judgment is coming. I love Jonah's response. No, I ain't going there. They don't deserve it. Really? Do you know those guys, the Ninevites? That's like praying for Packers fans. What? Come on. But he did reluctantly go. He proclaimed judgment. He did so in such an enthusiastic way. I'm Jonah the prophet. Judgment is coming. Thank you. But here's what happened. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, you can read it on your own when you have a moment. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, the whole nation. Then the word of the king came of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, horde nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat. Do not let them drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not be perish? Then God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Who would have thunk that a whole nation could come to repentance? If we want to see our nation change, it's not going to be through political means alone. More importantly, it'll be through the revival of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the entire land. The Bible says that there are two words for repent. One is used in Hebrew. It simply means returning to God. Under the Mosaic Covenant, they understood and knew who God was and they would often depart from Him. And their repentance, like that of the repentance of, that John the Baptist proclaimed in the wilderness, turned the people's hearts back to God. Today, there are many Christians who need to repent. They need to turn their hearts back to God. They need to ask God, as David had, to ask God to search them to see if there be any wicked way within them. They need to be real and honest with themselves, with ourselves. And ask the Lord, have we become complacent? Have we become carnal? Have we become apathetic? Have we become dismissive and desensitized to sin? And we need to confess our sins, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
But in the New Testament, there's a second word that is used. It's a Greek word. And it means to be radically changed in one's thinking. When an individual comes to Jesus Christ for the very first time, what will happen within that person's life is that they will begin to radically think differently than the world around them. See, there are many who experience remorse. They're sad because they got caught. They're burdened because of the consequences that they've brought upon themselves. But repentance is always manifested in and through change. Being a parent, I think we all know that there are certain things that we tell our kids not to do and they go and do them just like we told them not to and we catch them and they cry and they say they're sorry and so forth and we forgive them. And then the moment we're not looking again, they go and do the exact same thing. I heard of one family who got so tired of telling their son to stop climbing all over the furniture. And we're not just talking about a child bouncing up and down on a couch. We're talking about them, you know, doing uh, uh, dives off of end tables and so forth and running from couch to table to table to couch. Finally, you know what they did? They just removed all the furniture from the room. They couldn't control his behavior. They couldn't change his behavior. So they just removed the whole entire environment. You see, many Christians want to do that. They just want to change their whole environment. Well, if I change my environment, everything is going to become better. No, the problem is, is that you take the problems into the new environment with you. Because it's a, re, it's a matter of our heart. It's a matter of our heart. We cannot think that we can create a world that's going to encourage us in our Christianity. We know the world is far from God and has fallen from God. But what God will do is change our hearts. He'll change our minds. And we'll be able to weather the storms of temptation in the grace that He gives us to do so. But it means a radical change of one's mind. Seeing things completely differently in and through Christ. Whichever camp you're in today, repentance is the beginning of reconciliation and restoration. And next week we're going to see that occur along with revelation in the life of the brothers with Joseph. May I leave you with this? One of my favorite pastors, Dwight Moody. Man Man is born with his back towards God. When he truly repents, he turns right around and faces God. Repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is a tear in the eye of faith.